Welcome to the LDS Divorce Coach Podcast. I take the sting out of divorce. This is your host, Emily Sanchez. Hey, y'all. Happy Friday or whatever day it might be for you today. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you so much. I really do. I'm just so happy when I hear that people are listening. It makes me feel like I'm doing this for something, right? But today, I have a very solemn topic, and I want to make sure that I approach this with as much solidarity and as much respect as I can. So yesterday, I attended a Holocaust survivor speech at my daughter's school. Uh, We were lucky enough to see that, and I felt like I had to take that opportunity to be there with my daughter, because I remember doing this one time in college, having that opportunity to hear a Holocaust survivor. And nowadays, they are getting less and less, fewer and fewer. So I knew that I had to take this opportunity. And I just want to make sure that I take this topic with that respect that it deserves. As it is her story, she did not want it, you know, videotaped or recorded in any way. And so, out of respect for her, I'm going to leave a lot of detail out of it. Her name is Ellie Oren. She grew up in Amsterdam. She was born in 1932. So, she was eight when the war broke out. And she, I just have to say, she had the funniest personality. She was so spunky and full of life. And I loved seeing that. And you could tell that she carried that, you know, even though she had this horrific, traumatic experience, she carried with her this personality that just shone across the room. I loved it. But she started off by telling us a Chinese proverb that she kind of lives her life by. And the proverb goes like this. An elephant sees a hummingbird lying on its back with its feet up. And the elephant says, what are you doing laying there with your feet up? And the hummingbird said, well, I heard that today the sky is falling. So I'm just getting ready. And the elephant says, you think you can hold up the sky? just yourself, you know, all alone? And he says, no, I don't think that, but everybody must do their part. I loved that so much. We each have a part to play, don't we? And so she felt that by telling her story, even though it was very painful for her, she talked about when she shares those experiences, it takes a lot out of her. It is not her favorite thing to do. But by educating especially the the kids, you know, that's junior high is where she was, educating, getting the word out that this is a real event, that this happened, and that something like this should never, ever be repeated in history, uh, speaks volumes for the type of person she is. So I'm just so grateful that I was able to hear it. But she was eight years old when the war broke out, and she said she had never really heard of a gun. I mean, She maybe read about it in books. Um, She came from a very, very peaceful society right in the heart of the city of Amsterdam. 
she never heard of any crimes. And then all of a sudden, there were German soldiers, you know, and she, she was eight. So she didn't know exactly what was happening. She didn't ask a lot of questions, but she just started hearing those the marching of the boots all the time outside. And again, she just said it was something that nobody talked about. One day they came out of their apartment and there was a sign on their door that said, Dirty Jew, get out. She just couldn't understand why her neighbors, first of all, even knew they were Jews. Second of all, they would say something like that. She didn't understand it. She said as the Germans were occupying more and more lands, occupying more and more of Amsterdam, that the Jews were eventually, you know, pushed more into the ghetto and they were not allowed to be, to sell to non-Jews. They were not allowed to go to stores to purchase their items from non-Jews. So it made the supply and demand very, very difficult for Jewish people because they had to sell and buy from only Jews. She talked about an experience of she always loved when the weather would get super, super cold. The one advantage was that the lakes would freeze up and she would get to go skating. And she talked about that wonderful experience of skating and how her mom packed her up and she went out skating all by herself because that's how she lived. It was safe. But her neighborhood kids started to taunt her as she was rounding the kind of the little rink that was made from the lake. Lake. They started taunting her, saying, Dirty Jew, get off the ice. And she was trying to hold back the tears. She came home and she just started crying and asked her parents, Why? Why were they saying this? And she never got an answer. Things began to get even worse. Uh, they began to be forced to wear the Star of David, a very, you know, yellow Star of David. They could not just pin it on their clothes. It had to be sewn onto their clothes. If it wasn't, that crime was punishable by death. If you had a coat, the star had to be on the outside of the coat. And then, you know, when you took your coat off, it, there had to be another star on your shirt. Her parents also held identification cards with a big J on it. So that any time they were walking, they would definitely be recognized as Jewish. She talked about a period of fear that just started to transpire, that they would see people being abducted in the streets for no reason, no reason at all. She saw people beaten, shot, and then taken away, ripped away from their families. It didn't matter, a mother from a child, a father, it didn't matter. And so they found no sense of peace because even in their homes, it, that fear started to set in because it wasn't just in the streets. It started, the German soldiers would come into neighborhoods, then they would come right into your home and, and abduct people and take them away to what she didn't realize, you know, were the camps. Um, the Jewish children were told that they were contaminating the other children. So eventually, they were forced to go into Jewish-only schools that were just kind of thrown together. And she talked about the first day she was there. It was easy to make friends because there were so many questions and you were in the same situation of that fear. And she met Mia, this little sweet girl. And she started to play at Mia's house and 
They would eat lunch at her parents' house, and Mia had a little brother named Max. And soon it was found that their father had been taken. And so Ellie's parents invited the kids over for lunch and just all the time and just adopted them, basically, trying to take care of them. And for lunch, they would usually have sandwiches and tea. And they had this teapot that was kind of like a circus mirror where you could look into it and you would see yourself skinny or fat or whatever. And this little Max loved it so much. And he would look in the mirror and make faces. And Ellie's dad just really got a kick out of him. Well, unfortunately, the rest of the family was taken also, um, taken to a concentration camp. And she never heard of Mia and Max ever again. So these type of experiences, I mean, for an eight-year-old turning nine, just so traumatic and so sad. It was, it was hard. She said she still has that tea kettle. She still has that today, that teapot, but she can't look into it. It's too painful. She spoke about how her father sold um, apparel mostly men's suits and he had to make it known that you know he was Jewish and so obviously business was lacking and one day a German soldier came to him and asked for the key to his business his shop which was out on Main Street well he really had no choice so they went down um, right in front of the shop, he gave him the key. The German soldier turned around and gave the key to another Dutch man and said, here's your business. Well, this was a Dutch collaborator. And he just, for whatever reason, collaborating with the uh, Nazis, he was given that business of her father's. She just said that was devastating, devastating to her parents. As things got worse... Uh, and there were fewer and fewer Jews in the city, there was a police officer, a Dutch police officer, who was part of the resistance. And his name was Venice. And he found a part of a house for them to hide in. And this woman who lived in the village outside of the city agreed to let you know, a Jewish family come live there. No big deal. And so she probably thought the war wasn't going to last four more years. But so they, Venice approached their parents and she said she doesn't know how long it took their parents to decide because at the time their parents were forced into another apartment sharing with their grandparents. And um, so she didn't know how long it took for her parents to decide to go into hiding. But eventually they did, and they, they couldn't bring the grandparents. This was a small room where they were going to hide. There was, there was no way that the grandparents could come. And unfortunately, shortly after they went into hiding, their grandparents were also taken. Um, and she knows which camp they were taken to, and, and she knows where they died. So she spoke about how painful that was also. But eventually they went to this house and her name was Miss Voss who housed them. And they went into the little back door 
And at the the first time they went in there, they just acted like they were summer guests. So she played with the children. Um, everyone knew they were there. But when the summer was over, they had to come up with a plan of how they were going to still stay there because the war was still raging on. So they acted out this whole farewell where they went to the train station. They said goodbye to all the people, the little children that she had been playing with. She had to say goodbye to them. And then they snuck back. They took a train and they walked for miles and miles coming back and snuck in the middle of the night into the back door. And there they remained for three whole years where they could not come out. She said the way she would cope would be reading that there was a daughter that lived at that house that would go to the library and and get books for them. Her father would try to homeschool her the best that he could. But the boredom that she spoke about just sounded awful. Awful. She spoke about how she would go to the very top room of the house. And that was, you know, she couldn't go out there all the time. They had to make sure the coast was clear, that the people weren't having any guests. And so she went out there up to the top of the house where she could look out a little window and watch the children play. It was a place where they couldn't see back in. She also spoke about the time when the Germans came and raided each house in that village because there was an enemy fighter jet that crashed and two uh, parachutes. And so they were looking for these Americans. She didn't know if it was Americans or Canadians. But so they searched every house and luckily there was a trap door underneath the top of the stairs where they hid for two, two or three days. I can't remember, but the Germans did not find them. She spoke about how sometimes if she was especially lonely, she would, the images she had witnessed on the streets, they'd run through her mind and she would just shake and she thought maybe her internal shaking would never end Uh, but she did speak about that their sense of humor never wavered okay no matter how bad things were that's how they got through it so what I heard from her was her coping mechanisms were the structure that her parents tried to give her throughout the day with homeschooling Reading, she was able to transport herself to another world through books. And then keeping their sense of humor, I think her parents were amazing. Um, They would laugh at these mice that would come in and her mother would want to scream. But she said everything was in whispers, everything, for three years. And then the day came when the war was over. And Miss Voss told them, you're free, you're free, you can go. Well, she didn't believe it. She wouldn't even come out of her room. She spent the night there, and her parents came out, but they didn't push her. And the next day, she said she went as far as the front door, but she she just didn't believe it. After the horror and after the trauma, I mean, would you? And at that time, she was 13, so it's just amazing. Um, eventually, she went out. She was with the children. They recognized her from a few years ago, you know, when they were undercover undercover summer guests and she said no I've actually been living there for the past three years in hiding and they were playing jump rope and she wanted to kind of jump in and 
She tried and she couldn't. She had not developed the muscles in her legs to jump because she had been in that room for those years without activating her leg muscles through that growth period. And she still has problems today. You know, it's interesting how when the freedom was granted to her, she couldn't really go with it. She was at that age where she couldn't really remember what it was like before the war. She couldn't remember what freedom felt like. She couldn't remember what normalcy was like. And so when it happened, she, she didn't really believe it. There's a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And if you haven't read it, it is very, very interesting. It is his accounts of being a kind of a neuropsychiatrist before the war and then during the war, um, his experiences of going to different concentration camps and work camps that were absolutely horrific and how he found meaning even in the worst situations. But he also tells of the feeling of freedom is not what you think it is. It's not this euphoric thing. It's, it was unbelievable. They couldn't grasp the idea. They didn't know what to do with it. So that is her story. And afterwards, I wanted so badly to ask her more questions. I could have stayed there for hours. It was so humbling. It was so amazing to hear. And so I went and asked her a few questions. And then one question that I really wanted to ask her was how she had dealt with her post-traumatic stress. You know, we hear of those stories. We, we hear of uh, the soldiers, people back from war, who've seen those things um, that have PTSD. Even if you haven't experienced war, you can have PTSD for, for other just traumatic events in your life. So I wanted to see if she had some words of wisdom so that I can help people, that I can help my clients who have trauma. And her answer was not what I was expecting. I thought she was going to go into, oh, I had this therapy and I did this or that. She just said, first off, it's different for everybody. But she just said, I denied that I had PTSD for years and years and years. She said about 10, 15 years ago, now she's 87, so keep that in mind. So not too long ago, after all of these years had gone by, she started go being invited. She was heard about her story, was heard from a professor who led PTSD um, classes and who also taught different courses at the university concerning those things. And so she would come and listen, and um, uh, there were a lot of um, military um, that had been through drastic traumatic things, and she always still denied it, and she would just, you know, with a sense of humor, just joke with him about not having it. And then after the first year, she came back and, and said, you're all going to be shocked, but I actually do have post-traumatic stress disorder. And she just said, for her, talking about it did not help. For her, it was like reliving the past. It was going back into the nightmare. And she would actually display the same things physiologically that she had when she was a child, like the shivering, the cold. She'd actually feel those things again. So in order for her to... And, and she doesn't say recover, because you never really recover 
from it, but for her to live more of a normal life, for her to not be drowned in despair, she would not explore and talk all about those things. But in her later life, as she goes and shares her story, even though it's very, very painful, um, she did not say there was any type of healing in it, but she's doing it for people. So interesting that her kind of advice was for something that traumatic for her, you don't talk about. Interesting. You know, Tony Robbins gets a lot of flack from therapists when he he always talks about why would you want to talk about like the worst think of it as a movie let's say you saw the worst movie ever and i've said this in other podcasts say you saw the worst movie saddest movie do you want to go back and like watch it over and over and over so that you can experience those same terrible feelings again no you don't do you tell all your friends about this oh this movie You have to watch it and let's talk all about it. No, you know, and I have a very, very trusted friend, therapist. Um, She's a licensed clinical social worker who's also a therapist. And I, if I could, would send all of people who I are seeking therapy to her. Her name's Tracy Kitchen. She is in Texas. And she and I have spoken many, many times, and what she says is hard about trauma. She specializes in trauma, is that when you do, you know, do the regular therapy, the cognitive behavior and those type of modalities, that you actually spawn a negative response. There's no healing that happens. They have to suffer through their trauma again. So it's not actually the best thing to do is to go in and delve deep into those the past and and talk all about the trauma that you experienced so she was saying that's why this md emdr which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is becoming more and more popular because it is working okay they're saying it's a super effective treatment for trauma because You don't have to relive your experience. She was telling me that cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a super well-supported and commonly used modality, is very effective. But when you are dealing with trauma, people go to a very irrational state, okay, making cognitions pretty much useless. So EMDR helps people at the root, right at the trauma, without re-traumatizing the client, like other modalities kind of tend to do. So that's what sets it apart. And that's why it's having some success. And not only with trauma, but with anxiety, depression, substance abuse, things like that. Now, I'd have to study more into it. But I have had friends who have tried EMDR, who swear by it, who love it, who it has helped. What I'm saying here is that there's other ways of addressing issues that are super, super painful. We don't always have to delve back in into the past. Another way is uh, neuro-linguistic processing, NLP. And this is what Tony Robbins does a lot of. And what it consists of is breaking your pattern. And I talk about breaking your pattern a lot. But it's uh, it goes into what we say to ourselves and how we can stop and break our pattern and just change it. 
by refocusing our brains on something else, letting your brains kind of open up to something new, transplanting new thoughts, new resourceful thoughts, and uh, which will kind of shift, make a shift in you. And I'll do a whole podcast coming up on NLP so that I could further explain it. But again, to recap, it's um, a very humbling. It was very interesting. It was very horrific. And I'm so appreciative to her to share that. And so what I hope that you get from this is if you have suffered some type of trauma or know someone who has, that we won't go with the first inclination that maybe today's world has made it popular. Oh, you need to go and talk all about it to someone. You need to just pour your heart out about somebody. But Because trauma is something different. And a lot of times so is our depression. A lot of times when we, when we focus in on that, and we're not changing our focus, but we're just focused on ourselves, um, our problems, our things like that, no progress can happen. No future can be seen. That sometimes it's better to not relive the movie. So we want to get out of ourselves, see the good in life, be the good, do the good, and do what we can to make it better. So I hope that there was something in there that you can feel and and experience, and that it it wasn't all sunshine and roses today, people. I'm sorry about that. But sometimes realizing uh, what a real problem is versus what n- not a huge problem is. Does that make sense? And I don't like comparing. I don't like, you know, your problems versus someone else's. But let's think about problems for a moment, folks, and what really would be devastating and how we can look at what we have as completely solvable and doable shift our focus move forward life is good let me know what you think take care all have a great day and make it what you want bye thank you so much for listening today come on over and visit me at coachemilysanchez.com don't forget to subscribe And as always, make it a great day.